Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. All of those categories get manifested in very different ways, and we're going to hear about one today that is different from anything we've heard before because we've got Chef Chad Hauser from Cafe Momentum on the podcast. Uh, Cafe Momentum is a Dallas-based culinary and training program, and uh, not to steal Chad's thunder, uh, but he describes it as taking kids out of jail and teaching them to play with fire and knives. Uh, that got my attention, Chad. Uh, it's really a, a, a treat to have you on, and I, I just know the work that you're doing represents yet another way in which the culinary community shares its strength. We've seen so many examples of those over our years that share our strength and with our No Kid Hungry campaign, the creativity, the innovation, uh, the ways that uh, people like you have thought to take culinary skills and use them to change people's lives. So very, very excited to hear your story and thrilled to have you on Ad Passion and Stir. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. It is um, it is a very distinct honor. <laughs> so thank you. And Chad, are, we, are you in Dallas as we're speaking to you? I am in in at home in Dallas, Texas. Uh, and you've been safe and healthy, and family's doing okay, and everyone's hanging in there through COVID. Well, I, I, I um, when people ask me how it's going, I always just say my wife is still tolerating me, um, <laughs> which is you know a, a very tall task um, to have to 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 deal with me even even more um, for the first several months of COVID when we were doing a lot of working from home. Um, so she, she still loves me. She's still tolerating me. And that's, um, more than I could ever ask for <laughs> the rest of us are healthy. My dad lives with us. Um, I refer to him as our 76 year old teenager, um, <laughs> but, but you know, I finally got him wearing a mask and, um, we're, uh, feeling very, very fortunate to be in a household that, um, still has everyone working and, um, you know, financially have been uh, unaffected by by the pandemic, and have family nearby, great neighbors. Do a, do a lot of um, stay in your yard happy hours with the neighbors. <laughs> yep. Well, we've got a uh, uh, instead of a seventy six year old teenager, we've got a fifteen year old teenager. So I think of uh, our kitchen as our kitchen. It's also a tenth grade classroom. Uh, <laughs> it's my office, uh, and uh, yeah, we're all everyone's finding different ways to make things work within their own, uh, within their own households. Oh, I was gonna say, it's definitely, it's definitely an adjustment. I, I have a almost 11 month old son and oh my, gosh. Uh, my, my wife and I for about four months were, you know, part-time stay at home parents, part-time full-time employees, um, part, you know, everything. And it was, uh, you know, you wake up at five forty-five, six o'clock in the morning, and you don't go to bed till you know close to midnight every night because you're just trying to to do all the jobs. What's your 11 month old name? Felix. Felix. So Felix came along right before yes. things really went crazy, right? Probably three or four months into it, uh, yes. he was probably three or four months old when everything started to unravel. So yeah, you've had your hands full. And uh, Chad, you were a, a chef for many years uh, at a restaurant whose uh, you sold your partnership to. I, I I know what people are usually asking you about is how the kind of light bulb went off for Cafe Momentum, but I want to start even a little earlier and okay. just understand how you became a, a chef in the first place. What were the influences? What drew you to, to cooking in the culinary world? Well, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's funny. Um, I, you know, I grew up in a household with, with parents that... Um, it demanded excellence, right? And like, like you know, it wasn't just about graduating high school. It was about graduating high school with honors. It wasn't just about going to college. It was about getting a degree and embarking on a successful career. Um, so you can imagine their bewilderment um, when after two years of college, I just kind of threw my arms up and said, um, well, I really don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Um, I... Um, but I knew that I had to graduate college. So I told, I, I sat down with my parents one day and I said, listen, I know I have to get a degree. So I'm going to get a degree in English literature um, because it sounds cool. And um, when I finish um, getting my degree, uh, I'm going to go work in a kitchen and try cooking. Um, that way I will have 
fulfilled my obligation uh, as as your son um, to get a degree, but uh, I want to try cooking because it's the only thing that sounds interesting to me. Um, had, had there it, been cooking influences in your home or your childhood? I think the biggest influence for me, honestly, was, um, you know, we have a very tight knit family. My mom is one of five. Um, and every Sunday, um, my mom, dad, me, aunts, uncles, cousins, we all went to my grandparents' house, like religiously every Sunday evening and had Sunday supper. We all broke bread together and spent time together. And I, I think, um, that created an, an association for me between food and, and, and camaraderie between food and family, you know? Um, and so I, I think, you know, having those kind of vivid feelings about food and, and even um, just growing up, I was, you know, two, two events happened. One was uh, my mom stopped cooking when I was like 11 or 12. So all those delicious home cooked meals, all of a sudden I was like, okay, wait, if I want those, I got to figure out how to make them. Um, and then I, when, why did, why did she stop? You know, um, I, 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 I um, she, she, she passed away um, a year ago and, and, and I had asked her a hundred times and she just laughed. Huh. Um, I, I think, <laughs> I think it was um, uh, just time, you know, I, I had two parents that worked very, very hard. Um, and uh, I think over time she was like, you know, uh, I get the same general um, feeling whether I cook food or whether I, um, grab something to go. Um, and so, um, and my dad traveled a lot. Um, and you know, by the time I got into middle school, I was very active in yep. different sports or activities or whatever. And so it was just like, I'm, you know, I'm not cooking for myself and, and that's it. Um, well, you know, you were lucky Chad, because my sister and I, we had a wonderful, wonderful mom. Uh, but we used to wish she would stop cooking because her <laughs> cooking was not her strong suit. So. Yes, I, um, there were, there were, there were pluses and minuses to it for sure. <laughs> okay. So anyhow, you decided to become a chef and, yeah, well, uh, well, and I, I told my parents I wanted to, I, I was going to get a, a, a degree in English literature. And then afterwards I was going to, um, um, try cooking and, and my, my, my father, uh, of all, of all people, um, was like, well, if you love cooking, um, why don't you just go to culinary school? Um, and so I did. So I went, I enrolled at El Centro College um, and two years later had a, a, an associates in food and hospitality service. And then uh, into the restaurant biz until uh, this moment when you were, as I understand it, you were kind of teaching some uh, young kids in the juvenile justice system to make ice cream. And this kind of light bulb went off about how much they needed you and how much of an opportunity there was to change their lives is, uh, am I getting that right? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, for me, um, it, it was complete happenstance. And, and I think just kind of for context, um, in, in 2007, I had sold my house. Uh, I, I took all the equity out of it. I took out a loan and bought into a restaurant. And, and at that point in time, thought I have, I've achieved my ultimate goal. I, I'm, I'm, I'm co-owner of a restaurant, I'm a chef of a restaurant. Um, and, and that was it, you know? Um, and then in 2008, by complete happenstance, um, I was actually volunteered by another gentleman to go out and teach eight young men in juvenile detention um, to make ice cream for an ice cream competition. And um, I think that the, the biggest um, thing that happened, at least initially, um, was a lot of shame. Like, you know, I, the moment I met um, these eight young men, I, I realized immediately that I had stereotyped them before I had ever met them. And, mm. and for me, I was, I was embarrassed to myself because I, I, I thought I was a better person. Um, and, 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 but when, when confronted with it, literally face to face, um, you, I realized I, I wasn't. Um, and how did that come about, about Chad? How did you end up meeting them? Well, I was uh, on the board of directors of a, a very small nonprofit called Dallas Farmers Market Friends, which is a, just an advocacy group for the Dallas Farmers Market. And we had um, were putting together an ice cream competition that was meant to bring in um, local college 
culinary school students um, to compete against one another um, and just just create some excitement uh, at the market. Uh, and there was a gentleman that was on the board um, as well that that um, had launched a, a program that did some uh, training classes inside one of the Dallas County juvenile detention facilities. Um, and he just kind of uh, on a whim said, you know, can I bring eight young men from from one from this detention facility to, to participate and compete in this ice cream competition. And when um, everybody in the room just kind of lit up, like, absolutely. That's like, that's like philanthropy squared, you know? I, um, and he said, great. I just need to find someone to uh, teach them to make ice cream. And the, uh, literally all fingers in the room turned and pointed at me. I was like, Oh, Oh, child. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess I had already had a rep- reputation as a sucker. <laughs> um, and, and were you saying that, that while you were actually doing it, or was it shortly thereafter that you, you just kind of had this moment of introspection where you were really questioning why was I not aware of this need earlier? Why did I have certain stereotypes in mind? Well, it was, you know, um, it, it was through the process. Um, you know, I spent that first um, encounter with them, teaching them to make ice cream. But m- more importantly, I, I spent the, you know, the time listening, really listening to them, tell me who they really were, how they really were, why they really were. And two days later, um, the county bust these young men down to the farmer's market um, to, to compete against college corner students with the ice creams that they had made. Um, and one of the young men actually won the whole thing, um, beat out the college students and everybody. Um, and he was so excited um, and, um, came running up to me, getting in my face and yelling, sir, I just love to cook. Um, and I just screamed right back at him, sir, me too. <laughs> um, and he said, I, I just love to make food and give it to people and put a smile on their face. And I mean, that brought me right back to those Sunday suppers at my grandparents' house and why I loved cooking. Um, and, and then he told me, he said, well, sir, when I get out, I'm going to get a job in a restaurant. What do you think I should work? Wendy's or Chili's? Hmm. Um, of course, heeding the advice of my father, I said, whoever hires you first. Um, and I drove home that afternoon and all my excitement and enthusiasm, um, just went away. Um, because I started to think about, you know, like on the surface, you think about things like what's going to change for this young man. Like he's going to go right back to the same house, the same street, the same neighborhood, the same school, the same poverty, all of these things that had pushed him on a path to detention. And in, in, in those things, those factors are, are relevant because when you hear the kids talking about the, the decisions they made or the crimes that they committed that led them to detention, you realize that they're not um, criminal acts done out of just being, you know, a a jerk. (laughs) Um, They were, you know, stealing something so that you and your little brother could eat, Um, robbing someone so that you could help your mom pay the electric bill. I mean, they, they were, real problems for them and there was no real solutions otherwise. And, um, as I just kind of continued to be real reflective about it, I started thinking about myself at that age. Um, and, you know, just kind of comparing and contrasting and, and came to the realization pretty quickly that, you know, for myself and for this young man, like our lives were, were, um, dictated by choices that were made for us before we were ever born. Um, you know, things like the color of your skin, the socioeconomic class you're born in, the part of town you're born in, the resources you have access to, like those things matter, whether we want to, uh, like it or not, um, they matter and they play into the trajectory that, that, um, of your life. And I just remember thinking to myself, that's not the world that I want to live in, um, and so you you kind of have two choices. You, you could either um, just turn a blind eye, walk away, and and sit in 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 the comfortability of of knowing that I'll I don't have to worry about that, um, or lean into it. Um, and um, you know, for me, walking away wasn't wasn't an option. And and I imagine that um, there was also such a contrast when you talk about. Uh, how you even got into cooking in the first place and the importance of family and that family meal and just your, your family structure. And I'm 
guessing based on some of the experience I've had um, with kids in similar situations that their family situation was much different uh, and that it was probably did not have, you know, clearly the support uh, that, that you did. And that must have been um, just a glaring contrast. And I'd love to hear a little bit more now that you've worked with a, a lot of young people. Uh, what else should we understand about just their lives and, and, and what their lives look like? Um, well, I think that, um, that could probably take up another four hour podcast, but, <laughs> um, I'm sure. you know, I, I, I think what I've learned so much is, is really the magnitude of things that, that so many of us take for granted. Um, you know, just as a, as a glaring example, we worked with 182, uh, youth last year. And 42% of them are homeless. Um, and I would garner that probably close to another 42% um, were what, what, what is um, politely referred to as, as housing insecure, um, meaning, you know, there's a lot of instability in their housing. Um, they do have a place to sleep tonight, um, but that's not guaranteed tomorrow. Um and so, and, and, and then when you, when you kind of dig deeper into that, you realize that for a lot of them, um, they're not only homeless, but they're on their own. I mean, they're 15, 16, 17 years old and, um, they're by themselves. So, you know, things like finding where they're going to sleep at night, um, where they're going to get their next meal, uh, not to mention what to do if you don't feel well or anything like that is, is all it's on them um, at that young of an age to figure it out. And um, you, you just begin to see how um, there's all of these cracks that are so easy for them to fall in. Um, and once you're in it, it's so gargantuan, um, you know, to get back out. Um, and, and then you start to dive in deeper and kind of realize that the system is not designed to help them get out. Um, yep. It's designed, you know, I mean, just, just looking at recidivism or reincarceration uh, across the country. Um, but especially in youth, I mean, in Texas, half the kids that go to jail once are going to be right back. Um, usually within a year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that, that's not because they're, you know, um, just, hardened criminals it's because the system's designed to bring them back so chad what was the path from uh having recognized this need and this opportunity what was the path from uh teaching a handful of young people to make ice cream to cafe momentum and i imagine it was not a, a linear path that it was you know launching something new uh, probably had fits and starts and had to raise money for it and so forth. When, when did the idea uh, take hold with you that I had to create a kind of a permanent, uh, you know, ongoing way to address this? And what did that look like for you and your family? Well, um, you know, uh, the first thing I did was really started, you know, spending more time um, at, at, you know, juvenile facilities and, and, and listening to the kids and listening to the staff. And, and you hear the staff talk a lot about consistency and stability. Um, and those are, are, are two things that resonate in every story um, that, that kids are telling you, you know? So for me, it was an immediate understanding that what, whatever my idea was, uh, it needed to revolve around consistency and stability. Um, and, th and that's where the idea for Cafe Momentum came about was, you know, how can I take my skills um, to build a, a consistent and stable environment um, for the kids to engage with? But of course, you know, you uh, <clears throat> start approaching people and saying, hey, I, I, want, I want to open up a nonprofit restaurant. And then immediately they stop you right there before, you know, before you go any further and say, aren't all restaurants nonprofit? Right. Uh, and so you, that's the first hurdle you have to overcome. Um, and then saying, you know, listen, I want to take kids out of juvenile detention and teach them to play with fire and knives. And, and it's going to make uh, them better. It's going to make our, our city better. Um, and, 
And then you deal with, with just general societal um, stereotypes. So you have, uh, you know, people literally had people asking me what I, what, what I was going to do when the kids started stabbing, stabbing each other in the kitchen. Um, I had people that would tell me that the kids didn't want to work. They just wanted to collect a check. Um, people would say things like those kids have never uh, been to a nice restaurant. They can't cook your food. Um, and, and so then, then there's this like realization that sets in that, wow, these kids are never, ever, ever going to have a chance if this is the way that society views them and treats them. Um, and so, um, had an idea that like, you know, much like me, um, meeting the kids for the first time and, 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 and knowing them, um, and, and, completely changing my life and, and my view um, that if I could create a, a scenario in which we could do that um, with within the community um, that we could have that same impact so in uh, June of 2011 um, I launched a, a series of monthly pop-up dinners and the idea was to, to go into one of the top restaurants in Dallas on a Sunday night when they were closed uh, and sell tickets to a private dinner have the chef write a four-course menu and then the staff to not only help the chef executing the, the food, the, the cooking and plating in the kitchen, but serving it to the level and quality of service of that restaurant um, were eight young men that we would bus in from a, a juvenile detention facility. And the very first dinner, um, if I'm being honest, uh, didn't think anybody would show up. Uh, <laughs> however, um, I mean, to, to the point to where I had devised a plan to, to call, to call my mom and have her guilt the ladies in her Bible study class and to buy tickets to the dinner. So we would have. You got to, you got to do what you got to do to get started. No. <laughs> it was for the kids. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but within 24 hours um, from posting uh, a PayPal link um, to buy tickets, it had, it, it had sold out. Uh, in fact, it, it had oversold um, before we could turn the PayPal link off. Um, and, and every single person that showed up at that first dinner, um, when they left, you know, they looked me in the eye and they said, you know, this could be my son. And, and for me, that was, that was exactly what, what needed to be heard. Um, that was exactly the effect that needed to happen. Um, and, and uh, we, we went on to do 41 of those dinners over three and a half years, but, but about a year into uh, doing the dinners, I just <clears throat> was having a conversation with my business partner and um, just told her that I, I needed to walk the talk um, and, and for me, that meant, you know, it's one thing to, to tell the kids that you believe in them. Um, it's something very different to prove it. Um, and I wanted them to know, um, unequivocally that I believed in them and so much so that I was willing to, to bet my entire career on them. So I sold my ownership of the restaurant, uh, back to my business partner, effective September 1st, 2012, um, to focus my full time and attention on Cafe Momentum and getting getting the doors open. And what does Cafe Momentum look like today? Uh, what's the experience that your diners have? And what's uh, you mentioned that last year you worked with 182 young people. What's the kind of the scale of of, uh, of people that you're touching? Yeah, well, <clears throat> um, of course, uh, I'm asking. I guess I would love to hear the answer both pre-pandemic and now because I know it's got to be different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, uh, pre-pandemic, um, Cafe Momentum is a five-year-old restaurant that's been consistently ranked as one of the top restaurants in Dallas since the day we opened. Um, and we do take a lot of pride in that because it does prove above and beyond anything else that we do. Um, that the young men and women that are in our program can and will rise to whatever level of expectation is set for them, as long as we're giving them the tools and resources and opportunity to do so. Um, we are a 12-month program, so kids that once they're released from detention, they can um, you know, sign up to uh, voluntarily sign up to to be a part of the program. Um, never a court mandate or probation requirement. Um, over the course of the 12 months, they will work their way through every station in the restaurant. So, you know, in no particular order, they'll spend time being a dishwasher, a prep cook, a line cook, busser, server, host, hostess, food runner, 
We do that for three reasons. Number one is um, they're learning new life skills and social skills, and they're getting to apply them into the you know the different environments that each one of those stations um, presents. I think that you know the biggest example there is um, we focus on uh, disagreeing appropriately uh, and the way that you would appropriately disagree with a fellow line cook when you're trying to get food out for 15 tables at once is very different than the way in which you would appropriately disagree with a customer that that <clears throat> sat down 10 minutes ago, ordered three minutes ago, and is already complaining that they've waited 45 minutes for their food. <laughs> Not that right. that happens. <laughs> um, and the second thing they're learning is what are their strengths? What are their interests? What are they good at? You know, for the first time in their life, they're getting to learn positive things about themselves. Um, and, and we want them to really lean into it. Um, you know, I've got a great story about a young man that, uh, we ran a special on a Saturday night and said, whoever orders that, whoever sells the most specials gets, gets to get a free entree at the end of the night. And, uh, this one young man sold us out of every single special in the first 45 minutes we were open and he wasn't even waiting tables. He was a busser. Um, but he figured out real quick, I'm pouring the water. I'm the first point of contact to the table. So he, deployed a sales pitch and ended it with, so you just let your server know that DJ told you to order the special and by golly, 45 minutes later, he had a free entree. Um, and I love particularly about that story is that's a strength that he has that, that exceeds our industry. You know, um, he can take that with him wherever he goes in life. Um, and then the third thing is they're learning what it means to be a team player. And, you know, I think we have this misconception that, you know, being a team player is what do you do for the team, but, but it, which is certainly important and true. Um, but there's the other end of that is what does the team do for you, right? So being a part of a team that's supporting you to be successful um, while you're supporting others in the team to be successful as well. Um, while all of that's going on, we have a community services center adjacent to the restaurant Um that houses our case management team. We have a staff psychologist, um, a, a curriculum coordinator, education coordinator, program director that are working um, to build an ecosystem of support around the young men and women we serve um, so that we are able to holistically address the issues and barriers, things like housing, food insecurity, healthcare, um, that had previously pushed them on that path to detention. Uh, in fact, um, almost a year and a half ago, we launched our own high school. Um, and as of today, um, we've had 15 um, youth um, in our program become high school graduates. And, and the significance of that is that, um, you know, last year, 54% of the kids that came in the program were high school dropouts. Mm -hmm. And now 100% of our kids are either graduated high school or on track to graduate high school. Mm -hmm. And so, Chad, do you and your team, uh, are, are you uh, screening uh, these young people for um, the ability to succeed at Cafe Momentum? Are you taking everybody that applies? That's got to be uh, challenging to, you know, balance all of the issues and other, you know, needs that these kids have. Uh, so how do you how do you make that work? Now, we, there's no, um, the only screening that we do is just confirm that they are, are, you know, involved in the juvenile system. Oh, wow. Um, that's, that's literally the only screening, um, we, we, we will otherwise, you know, take, take any of them. We, we're unable to work with sex offenders, um, just for legal purposes, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the state of Texas, um, if you're considered a, a sex offender and, and just for context, um, if, if you walked into a classroom and mooned your classmates, um, you would be a registered sex offender in Texas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that's not where our mind goes when we think of the term sex offender. Um, and, and so, and because of that, um, you know, if a young person was a sex offender and they applied to be in our program, um, because of the nature of our program um, and certain uh, ethical laws, uh, our case management team would be ethically bound to inform uh, the parents of all other interns in our program that there is a, a registered sex offender working in the program um, without legally being able to disclose what that offense was. Um, it, which allows the mind to begin to wander, rumors to begin to to, to start. And so we just don't think that it's um, setting them up for success. 
um, to be able to bring them in um, into the program. But otherwise, um, there's nothing that prohibits um, a young person from from entering our program. Oh, fantastic. And do, and do you have any way of, uh, or your case management team, any way of following them after the program? Do you have any sense? You were talking earlier about recidivism in a different, you know, stricter sense in terms of detention. Uh, do you have any sense of, uh, you know, what number or percentage of these kids go on to another job somewhere else in the industry or in some other industry uh, to some percentage of them? fall back into trouble because they've got so many other challenges in their lives. What's, what's the longer term longitudinal outlook? Yeah. You know, um, we of course track them. Um, and, and I get a lot of questions about, you know, how difficult of that, how difficult is that? And the funny thing is it's actually pretty easy because they never really leave. (laughs) They complete the program and go on, but they, 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 they always come back always again because we're family, you know? Um, but but we do you know as you brought up and, and I mentioned earlier uh, we do track recidivism um, I think for us that's a, a key indicator for a social return investment um, so in other words um, since we've opened we've had to raise about four million dollars um, to keep the the program and the restaurant operating um, but when we juxtapose that against um, recidivism you know as I mentioned earlier in the state of Texas. Um, almost half of, of the young people that go to jail once will, will, will reoffend and go back again. Um, at Cafe Momentum, we've worked with over a thousand uh, young people from first pop-up dinner to date, and, and our recidivism rate is 15.2%. Um, and when you factor in the, the taxpayer cost to incarcerate a juvenile, which is about $127,000 in the state of Texas, um, you know, it, it means that every time we do a, a catering event and the mayor is there, um, the kids run up to him and just wear him out, uh, asking him uh, where their check for $40 million is, uh, <laughs> how much money we've saved taxpayers. Um, and just the simple, um, you know, task of, of providing resources and opportunities that allow kids to not have to, to go back to jail. Um, but you know, we also, as, as I mentioned in education, you know, studying things like, um, uh, healthcare, food insecurity, um, and, and education, um, because those are all important as well. Um, when a kid goes through our program, they're required to, to, um, re-enroll, um, and actively engage in school. Um, which is why we built our own school is to remove some some other barriers that they were having in getting into school, um, and so uh, while they're while they're in our program, they're not only going to school, but they're working through things um, like career exploration, financial literacy training, sex education classes, mock interviews, resume writing, and so that when they're um, rounding near the end of of the program and completing the program. Um, they're actually interviewing with an employment partner and they begin an externship um, mm-hmm. and that's to ease their transition out of um, our restaurant and organization and kind of onto the rest of their lives. Um, one of our employment partners <laughs> is uh, the, the Ruthie's food truck here in Dallas, which is was actually now named Ruthie's Fueled by Cafe Momentum. And a lot of our kids that complete our program end up going on and working on the food truck and uh, I, I got uh, a text message from the owner a couple of weeks ago, um, and and she and one of her uh, management employees were on the food truck uh, working because all of the kids that uh, came from our program are all college students and all had their first day of college and couldn't work. So <laughs> she was on the truck working um, because they were in college. Um, and so that's kind of the, the gist of, of what success looks like when someone leaves our program is that they've got a solid foundation, um, and a path to continue to build, um, the rest of their life and, and, you know, reach their, achieve their full potential in life. Um, whether that's going to college, a lot of our, um, young men have gone into, uh, uh, mechanic school and become auto mechanics. One works on diesels, um, 
and we even have one young man that won um, an award from NASA uh, a year ago, and he is now a senior uh, at the University of Texas at Arlington, um, and he's not leaving school. He's staying in and wants to get his PhD um, and build a career working for NASA. So these are amazing, uh, you know, kind of personal testimonials. Let me ask you about what success looks like in a in a different uh, sense, not necessarily more important, because I don't think there's anything more important than you just described in terms of the impact on these uh, these several young men that you just mentioned. But when you think about um, what you want Cafe Momentum to ultimately be, and I think of it from the perspective of share of strength. We've been at this 35 years, so it feels like what you're doing as phenomenally successful as it's been is still early days. Is the goal to scale up uh, farther? Is the goal to help there be other cafe momentums around the country? What does success look like in the sense of, um, you know, where you are relative to the need, which is massive across the U.S.? Well, no, I thank you for asking that question because I think it is the most critical um, and important question um, for us as an organization and and one that we've been addressing for about the past year and a half. Um, You know, for me personally, um, thinking about um, working with almost 200 kids a year in Dallas, but knowing that 728,000 kids enter the juvenile system across the country every year um that what what we're doing um in the sense of building a program is key but i think what what we really need to push ourselves to do is is prove um that we are the new model for juvenile justice um and can do not just in dallas but across the country Um, So we've spent the last year and a half taking the steps um, to build out what that looks like for our organization and and going around the country. Um, And that started, uh, you know, last April, we did a pop-up dinner um, at the NFL draft in Nashville. Um, Been very blessed and fortunate to have the NFL and Players Coalition um, supportive of the work that we're doing. Um, We did a dinner last September uh, in Los Angeles, working with the Los Angeles Rams football team. Um, and we did a dinner uh, in January with the NFL and Players Coalition at the Super Bowl. Um, and what those dinners have allowed us to do um, is to begin to build a national conversation um, and create advocacy around the country for not not just the work that we're doing, but the young men and women that we work with. Um, And while doing that, we also launched um, a separate uh, organization called Momentum Advisory Collective. And um, thanks to generous funding from the Stand Together Foundation, um, have been able to staff um, the Momentum Advisory Collective team um, with just an incredible, incredible group of of individuals. So that um, in spite of of the pandemic, um, we've actually um, put together our um, strategy and business plan to build um, uh, 10 Cafe Momentum programs around the country in the next five years, starting in 2021, um, with that escalating to 30 programs in 10 years. And and while that's significant in and of itself, um, working with, you know, nearly five, you know, ultimately nearly 5,000 young men and young women a year, um, we're working to be very intentional um, around, um, the expansion so that we are not just expanding a program, but expanding the idea of what juvenile justice should look like in our country. In other words, you know, what our model doesn't do is take a young person that comes from, from trauma and, um, incredibly adverse, uh, circumstance and put them in handcuffs and isolate them, um, and reinforce that they're bad. What we do is we wrap we wrap our arms around them. We wrap them with an ecosystem of support. Um, we provide the, the trauma informed care. We address the social emotional needs uh, and build the ecosystem of support around them so that they can truly achieve their full potential. So that's our objective um, in moving forward. We just launched 
um, some virtual programming in Nashville, Tennessee, um, and it's been going amazing. Um, and our goal is to to have two programs built and established um, um, outside of Dallas in 2021. Uh, so you've got your work cut out for you. You know, I've often heard in the restaurant business, particularly in casual dining or in franchise operations, that um, you know leaders have to make a decision: are they going to work uh, in the business which you've been working in this business of cafe momentum, or are they going to work on the business of, in effect, scaling it up? And uh, it sounds like you're currently in the midst of, uh, of really doing both. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, um, you know, one of the biggest drivers for me is our mission statement at Cafe Moon. The last line of the mission statement says to help them achieve their full potential. And I think um, going back to what we talked about um, towards the beginning of, of this conversation about the stereotypes that people have um, I mean, even just just the idea that the juvenile justice industry term to describe the population that we work with is throwaway. Um, they call them throwaway youth. And um, that's a pretty egregious term to, to call any human being, but especially a child. Um, but it, for the kids, it's the scarlet letter they wear on their chest that says, this is who I am not who I want to be, not who I was born to be, but it's who I've been repeatedly told that I am. And so I think so much of the work, you know, if we're going to operate as an organization with the integrity that we believe that we have, um, then we need to be pushing as hard as we can um, to, to change that narrative um, and to eradicate that stereotype. Because these kids are never going to be able to truly achieve their full potential um, if they're forced to wear that scarlet letter on their chest their entire lives. Chad, I know we're running out of time, but uh, two other things I just wanted to ask you about before we wrap up. One is, uh, what kind of uh, pushback have you had, if you've had any, or have uh, there been unfair criticisms of the program? What do the skeptics say and how do you overcome that it seems like you've got lots of uh great data to overcome it but i'm just kind of curious what kind of you know any change meets resistance and i'm sure you you've met some what's it look like <laughs> well um you know it's always funny to me that um you know and now that the restaurant is approaching its sixth birthday um you still have people that come in that are shocked at the quality of food and service mm. in our restaurant. Um, and I, I think that's one of the biggest hurdles that we constantly have to seek to overcome is um, the, you know, the rationale behind why people think that, which is that mm -hmm. they don't think that the kids can do it. Right. Um, so we're constantly fighting those, uh, th those stereotypes and then I think, you know, the other thing is, um, <clears throat> as we do um, push to grow and scale um, around the country, um, it's fighting a lot of, um, what's the right word, negative pushback that we can actually scale. I mean, it's interesting on the one end um, to talk about somebody like Jose Andres, who has 30 plus restaurants, 17 different concepts. Um, and, you know, has built a successful restaurant empire um, without, you know, question. But but when we talk about wanting to to build this social social enterprise um, that is a hybrid of for profit and nonprofit, um, people can't wrap their brain around it. So they automatically default to, um, you know, it can't happen. It's mm. it's possible to happen. Um, so I, I think that's why it's so critical um, for us as we build um, two new programs next year to 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 be able to to dispel that. Um, I think once we get past that barrier, um, people will begin to know and understand um, exactly what scaling looks like for a social enterprise. Um, it's not it's not any different than it was, uh, you know, in in 2011, 2012 when. People didn't think that we could build the restaurant in Dallas. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, ex I'm excited to prove people wrong. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I have no doubt that you're going to. Um, and, you know, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is I, I've got a, a theory um, that may not be uh, original, but it's one that I've been very interested in. And I feel like you're a you know, kind of a proof point for it. And, and the theory is, again, having from the perspective of 35 years working with the culinary community on anti-hunger work, and particularly around our No Kid Hungry campaign, I have seen uh, over that period, and particularly in the last few years, what I think is a shift from the the, the industry uh, acting on what are really great charitable instincts, uh, and that's fueled a lot of our work, uh, so I have only good things to say about it. But I feel like there's a, a shift occurring from the charitable reflex to what I think of as more of a social justice reflex and a, and a sense that we've got to actually not only feed uh, kids and families, but we've got to get uh, in some ways to the root causes of why they're hungry in the first place. And we've got to provide supports so that uh, they can meet their own needs. Uh, and I guess my question is, uh, do you, uh, am I on track with that? I feel like you're a, a living embodiment of that notion. I don't know if you've thought of it that way or had a chance to reflect on it. Uh, but I think it's a pretty powerful shift that's taking place. And there, there are a number of examples, but you're certainly one of them. I'm just wondering whether that construct makes sense to you. Oh, uh, a thousand percent. Yeah. I mean, you know, and look, I'm biased, right? I, this I, I love this industry um, and, and, and have for 25, you know, plus years. Um, and, and I think about even just the idea of Cafe Momentum coming about, um, the biggest um, lift that we had, the biggest validation that we had um, in, in, through, the, through the eyes of the public was how fast this industry embraced the work that we were doing. I mean, I mentioned we did 41 uh, pop-up dinners over three and a half years. That's 41 restaurants in Dallas that opened their doors on the night that they were closed and said, absolutely come in. We're going to come in and work. We want to support the work that you're doing. And, and I think that, you know, as you said, it's it's been just weaved into the fabric of who we are as an industry um, to be, to, to be charitable and to be socially conscious. Um, I, I think over, you know, with the political climate that, that we've gone through over the past, uh, several years, um, and looking at things, um, like, um, even immigration, um, you know, our, our industry is, um, is filled with people, um, uh, that are immigrants. Um, and so it's personal to our industry, you know, um, it's personal that, that, that you want to support the person that's working next to you that may not have been born here. Um, all the way to the, just the diverse, um, ethical, eth ethnical makeup, um, of our industry. We're not a discriminatory industry. We're an inclusive industry, um, and even looking, you know, the National Restaurant Association came out with um, data a couple years ago that um, was nine out of 10 restaurant managers in this country started off as a dishwasher and eight out of 10 restaurant owners, um, present company included, started off as a dishwasher. Um, we're one of the last industries where you can actually work your way up um, from the bottom to the top um, with a clear path to do so. Um, and I think that all of those things breed a, a very high, high and intense level of camaraderie, um, in this industry that that's almost tribal. Um, and, and as a result, you see when, when things are, when the country's going through, um, the, 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 the things that it's going through, uh, over the past several years, um, it, it, it has shown very quickly um, the strength and, and power um, that our industry has um, as the second largest employer in the country. Mm -hmm. Well, it's uh, this has been just so fascinating for me, and I feel like uh, 
what you're doing. There does need to be more of this does need to scale. Um, we should have a separate offline conversation about ways that uh, share strength might be uh, supportive. I feel like we're missing the boat a little bit by not being um, in the mix here with what you're doing. And it's just, uh, it's just been uh, really inspiring. So congratulations and, and thank you for taking the time to be with us on Ad Passion and Stir. I, I can't thank you enough. I, it would be an honor to continue the conversation and work with you. I mean, I hope that that you realize um, that what you started 35 years ago has paved the path for me uh, and so many others. Well, uh, I, I always say, Chad, that we've been nothing if not stubborn, and I sense that same stubbornness in you. So, and I, I think it's a good thing. I, I, my former board chair told me one time, you have this amazing ability to listen to people tell you no and just let it pass right off of you and you just keep going forward. And I said, that's the nicest way anybody's ever told me I'm stubborn. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us. Um, thanks to all of our listeners for being with us on this really special episode of Add Passion and Stir with Chad Hauser from Cafe Momentum. Chad, I should ask you before we get off, is there a, what's the best website for people to learn more about what you're doing, to learn how to donate, to learn how to support you? Yep. Um, Cafe Momentum website is cafemomentum.org. Um, if you would like to learn more about our parent company and expansion plans, you can go to momentumadvisory.co, C-O. Um, and if you want some cool Cafe Momentum swag or uh, edible goodies, um, you can go to cafemomentumgoods.com. I'm starting with the edible goodies. Thanks for mentioning that. I will, I will be on the website before the, uh, before the day is over. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Add Passion and Stir. Uh, on behalf of the team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign, my sister Debbie Shore, who usually gets to be with me on these podcasts, but could not today, and Kelly Griffin and our producers at District Productive, uh, Woody and McKenna, we're so grateful. Uh, you can go to our website and listen to other episodes. You can rate us and rank us and subscribe. Thanks for listening. I'm Billy Shore. Mm-hmm.